Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open to the book of Psalm as we finish the last message in our Advent series this year, Hope Came. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, I would just encourage you, grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 453. That is page 453. If you are visiting with us and you don't actually own a Bible at all, we encourage you, take the Bible that you're using from the pew, take it home as a gift. We would love to give that, put that into your hands. Well, one of the things that I love about Christmas season, probably a lot of things that most people love about Christmas season, is that it is a hint of what life is supposed to be like, isn't it? It is a time of, of songs, a time of festivity, a time of light, a time of giving of gifts, a time of family. In short, Christmas is all that is wonderful about life, isn't it? Or is that really what Christmas is? Now, don't get me wrong, it's great to have all of those things, certainly, but life must consist of more substantial elements than the things of this world that can be so easily taken from those who have it or never received by those who don't. Christmas time, as wonderful as it is, must point us to something more. Now, I do love Christmas, but not so much because Christmas is an indicator of what is, but I love Christmas because Christmas is an annual reminder of what life is supposed to be like for all who put their trust in Christ. Christmas is a reminder of what is coming for all those. It is a reminder that what is coming is love, life, festivity, song, joy, family. You see, Christmas season is so much like many of the elements of the Christian life where the realities of God's kingdom have already broken through to this world. So God's kingdom is already here, but not quite yet. It's not in here in its fullness. So we live between Christ's first advent and his second advent in this period of time often called the already, but not yet. And all those realities are made possible because of the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas is a hint of what all of life was supposed to be. Christmas is a reminder of what life will be. And so it's only fitting that we conclude our series in Advent to think about life because the Bible has a lot to talk about life. And we're going to do that from one of, my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. But to really appreciate what David, who wrote this psalm, King David, we're going to actually look at the entire chapter. So if you will, by now, you should be at Psalm 16. Will you stand as we read together God's word, Psalm 16, these 11 verses. David writes this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart is instructed. 
I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And here's our verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So from these 11 short verses, Israel's greatest king, King David, helps us understand life. Now, it it may not seem readily apparent that life is the subject matter of this chapter in Psalm, but when you look at verse one, he cries out, preserve me, which is to say, guard my life, protect my life, and in verse 11, he concludes the chapter by revealing and reveling in the fact that God has shown to him the path of life. So these 11 verses are all about life. Verse one is the plea for life. Verses two and eight is the proof of life. And verses nine through 11 is a celebration of the possession of life. So this entire chapter is about having life. So we're gonna look at them one at a time. Number one, verse one, David's plea for life. Now here, King David cries out as he has done many times on many occasions for God to keep his life. Now keep in mind, this isn't isn't David the shepherd boy. This isn't David, Jesse's youngest kid. This is King David. King David, who at his time ruled one of the most powerful and successful dynasties of the entire Iron Age. Now why do I draw attention to this fact? Two reasons. First reason is, for the same reason, uh, let me think of an illustration, the, the, the same reason when you are going to a new restaurant or about to hire a new mechanic, what is it that we do in our culture and society today? We check out Yelp right? We are going to look at Yelp because a personal recommendation is worth anything more than a promotional ad any day because there's a human touch to it. It humanizes. It makes you realize that this thing can be trusted. This is David giving a personal recommendation of the Lord being able to preserve his life. But it's not just a personal recommendation. This is an authoritative recommendation. If I told you that I trust Tim Thetford for all my financial advice, that I don't make a single investment or financial decision without first consulting Tim, would you then trust Tim with all your money? He might want you to, granted, right? But no, you wouldn't. But if Warren Buffett or Mark Zuckerberg told you they don't make a single financial move without first talking to Tim Thetford, Would you begin to trust him now? Certainly you would wonder why he always wears just flannel shirts. (laughs) But Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg are more authoritative when it comes to making money than maybe I. So when they say they trust him, you're going to trust him too. This is David the king over one of the most powerful historical dynasties of the Iron Age in history who says he trusts the Lord. 
David's got armies. David's got riches. David's got fortresses. But who does he turn to when he needs protection with his life? Think about it, friends. When the one man whom everyone else in the nation looks to for safety, for protection, for their life, when that man looks to the Lord, the smart money says we ought to be doing the same as well. And so as we start this chapter, the first question Psalm 16 confronts us with is who do we look to to preserve our lives? Who do we look to to give our lives sense and meaning? Who do we look to to preserve us, to protect us, to provide for us? Friends, everyone is looking to someone or something. Who are you looking to to preserve and protect your life? Who are you looking to to fight your battles? Who are you looking to to be your riches? Who are you looking to to be your safe haven? Everyone is looking to someone or something in our world to find that life. And here we have one of the most powerful men in all history saying, I look to the Lord who gives me life. Let's move on. But looking to God for life will not work unless you define life the same way that God himself defines life. In other words, the Greek philosopher um, Socrates was right that the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. If you don't understand life, it might be looking you in the face and you'll never see it. I'll never forget years ago during Christmas time, our kids were, my boys were, were young, we didn't have our daughter at the time, and Lori and I were talking about getting them gifts. And as a young dad, I was really excited to, to get all the new two cool toys with my boys, and Star Wars, I think episode two or three, had just come out. And so there was these cool, I don't know what they were called, the Starfighters that, that Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin flew around in. So I bought a couple of those, and then I got lightsabers for my boys, except I got aqua noodles and cut them in half so we could really beat each other and not get hurt. So I was really excited about these cool gifts. And as I was talking with Lori, she was excited about a, a gift too. It, it was this wooden shoe that the kids could practice tying shoelaces. <laughs> I said, honey, I think my idea of gift is a lot cooler than your idea of a gift. The point is, we had completely different definitions of what a gift actually is. In a similar manner, if we define life in a way completely foreign to the way the author of life defines life, you will miss it even if it's looking you in the face. Well, how do you define life? Is it the American dream? Is it, is it being perpetually healthy? Is it having all the money you need? Is it having all the prestige and respect or popularity? Is that what life is to you? Because if it is, you will not understand what life is according to what the author of life says. That's why these next seven verses are so important. They are so critical because in these seven verses, in three broad sweeps, this ancient book from this king inspired by God says, let me tell you what life actually consists of. And what David writes down in these seven verses from verses two through eight, he talks about life being found in the one who delights in the Lord, the one who delights in the Lord's people and plan, and the one who delights in the Lord's truth. Now, 
because we're dealing with the book of Psalms, Psalms is a book of poetry, so it works differently than, say, the Gospels or the Epistles if we were working through them. So you'll notice that my points skip over because we're dealing with poetry. And notice how they go uh, 2, 5, 3, 6, 4, 7, because the way the poetry works in, in Hebrew is not meter and rhyme or, or like we would do in, in contemporary poetry. They do it on progression of thought. So two, three, and four lays out one idea, and five, six, seven kind of sums up the idea. So we're gonna jump around a little bit, and we don't have time to, to pour too much into these points, but it's so significant that when it's talking about life, David, under the inspiration of God, talks about the three areas that means, that makes life, life. And if you're honest, you look at that and go, wow, that's not how I would define life, but that's okay. We often don't know what we're doing. God does. Let's look at them one at a time. The one who has life. Life is to delight in the Lord, verses two and five. Now, why does David delight in the Lord, verse two? He says it because you are good. He is good. David puts it in the the negative by saying, I have no good apart from you. God is the objective standard of good, and because God is good, in verse five, David says, so I have chosen you as my portion and my cup. Now, just so you understand the broader context of this whole chapter, and we'll see it uh, particularly in verses six and later on, David is thinking back about how God has dealt with all of Israel, particularly how they were brought into the promised land and the promised land was given to the 12 tribes of Israel. So you're gonna hear a lot of this kind of language just now. My portion, my inheritance, the lines before me. Because they viewed everything, the goodness of God in the land they were given. That's the broader context, but the principle of life is still here. So he says, look, God is the absolute good and because he's good, I have chosen to make you my portion and my cup. Friends, the first element of of life is responding positively to the objective reality of God's character or revelation. Let me unpack that, because that's pretty meaty. The first reality of actually having life is responding positively to the objective reality of God's character and revelation of himself. This is how life is, by the way. There's always an objective reality and we respond to it subjectively. So the reality, the objective reality of Christmas, how are you responding to it? This objective reality called the Christmas season, how are you subjectively responding? Are you happy because of the season? Are you mad because of the materialism? Are you sentimental because of the tradition? Are you worshiping because this is a part of God's plan of redemption? See, there are 10,000 different scenarios of life where this principle is played out. The point is simply this. According to God, life is found in responding positively to the revelation of himself. So the second question we have to ask is, how are you responding to the objective reality of God? How are you responding to the objective reality of God's existence? Is it with joy? Is it with doubt? Is it with apathy, cynicism? Is it with worship and delight? That's the first key. How are we responding to the objective reality that he exists? Friends, how are we, those of you who call this church your home, how are we as a church responding to this reality of God? Is it fuel our generosity 
Does it give a sense of purpose to what we are about? Does it fuel our passion for world missions? Does it fuel our desire to live lives of holiness, to fight against sin? How do we individually and corporately respond to the objective reality of God? David says, I trust you, I make you my portion. Number two, delight in the Lord's people and plan. So life is found in responding to God's revelation of himself personally and and positively. Number two, life is found in delighting in God's people and plan. Verses three and verse six. Verse three, love the people of God around you. Verse six, love the plan of God for you. Now granted, I don't have to tell you how unintuitive these two are. Let's face it, loving Jesus is easy. Sometimes loving his people, not so much. But David says, those, your saints, the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Loving people and trusting God for all the circumstances of our lives probably are some of the hardest things God asks asks us to do, especially if your circumstances are tough. Look at David, verse six. He says, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. So, hey, my inheritance in the land of Israel has been beautiful. But what about if you were the guy that got stuck with the desert? Maybe, maybe you got the flourishing land by the beachfront property, but what if you were the one that got the Dead Sea? But because God is good, we can trust him. And it doesn't matter so much where the lines of your life have fallen as much as it matters how you respond to the Lord who laid them down. So the first reality of life is delighting in the Lord himself. The second is delighting in his people and his plan, no matter how difficult or joyous that might be. And the third is delighting in the Lord's truth, verses four through seven. Now how do we do that? In verses four through seven, answer it for us. Verse four, through negatively, in verse seven, positively, look at verse four. He says he refuses to compromise, and verse seven, he embraces God's counsel. Now, in a pluralistic society like our own, compromise is usually a very good thing. When it comes to our politics, when it comes to living with neighbors in our community, compromise is good. But there are times when compromise is just wrong. That compromise can be wrong. And in verse four, King David reminds us of this fact. He won't participate in the practices of those who worship another God. He won't even let the names of those practices or individuals or their gods be found upon his lips. In contrast, he embraces wholeheartedly God's counsel for his life. Almost in like a summary statement in verse eight, he says, I have always put the Lord before me. Now, I know we're going at a quick clip here, but I, I want to get us to the end of this psalm. There's so much more that can be said, but that's enough for now. The obvious reality is that so much of life is not defined by the way we think of it or by the values we put on it, but it matters what God thinks of it and the value he puts on it. Notice verse nine, the first word of verse nine. As David reflects on all these realities, he concludes by saying, therefore... My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. What he's saying is that I have total peace. 
And then we have this amazing verse in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's a problem, though, with all this. As great as this psalm is, here is a problem. If the way we experience the benefits of verse 11, the path of life, fullness of joy, eternal pleasure, doesn't that sound pretty good? Yes. But if the way we experience those benefits are in verse 11 is by being the kind of person who always delights in the Lord, his people, his plan, and his truth, which is what verses two through eight made clear, then we have a real problem. So what I'm saying is, if verse 11, we like that, if the way we get that is that if we consistently obey verses two through eight, and if we do one, we get the other, we have a problem. Number one, we have a problem because that is not the message of Christianity. I know a lot of people think that's the message of Christianity, that you do these good things and you get these rewards and that's what it's about. But that is not the message of Christianity. As a matter of fact, the message of Christianity is you can't do these, do these things, which is why Jesus did them. Secondly, if that were the message of Christianity and to get the benefits of verse 11, we have to do verses two through eight, I won't get any of them, and neither will you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but that's the reality, isn't it? If we're being honest with ourselves, we don't delight in the Lord as life itself. We do not delight in his people or his plans for us. If anything, we complain about them and grumble about our situation, and we don't delight and embrace his truth nearly enough. So if getting the benefits of verse 11 was contingent on the obedience of verses two through eight, I will not get any of them, neither will any of you, because you're probably just like me. Bummer, we have a problem. See, St. Augustine, the early church theologian and philosopher said, the human heart is full, chalked full of disordered loves. I mean, uh, we love our Christmas gifts more than the forgiveness of sin. We love our plans for Christmas more than the plan of salvation. We love the season of Christmas more than the reason for the season, even if you have one of those signs in your yard. Our loves are all out of whack. And so if being blessed by verse 11 means we have to obey verses two through eight, we have a problem. So the question you should be asking yourself is, so what's the point of a psalm that talks about life in God and life with God if it's impossible to have this life from God? And that's our third and final point, verses nine through 11. And David helps us out right as he writes because as David is writing this psalm, we must know if you know anything about the life of David, that he was going beyond even his own personal experience in chapter 16. After all, if you were with us in our study of 1 Samuel, if you know anything about the Old Testament, uh, like 1 and 2 Samuel or the kings, you know very well that David did not always set the Lord before him and that David was not always unshaken because of his great faith. As a matter of fact, there are many instances where David did the opposite of that. And so David as well as his original readers and hearers, would have read Psalm 16 realizing that this is an unrealized ideal. 
This all sounds great, but it can't be real. But David, like he, the God who came to be by his side as he so proclaims in verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. The God who came to be at David's right hand comes to be with us as well. The name, the song we sang, O Emmanuel, his name means God with us. It's that great carol, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. David knew that even what he wrote here in Psalm 16, he could not always live up to. It has to be someone else that makes us a reality. So much so, this is why in Acts chapter two, for you note takers, Acts chapter two and Acts chapter 13, both Peter and Paul link this very psalm, this very psalm to the resurrected Christ, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Look back at verse 10 of Psalm 16. When David writes, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption, what in the world? What is he talking about? David clearly died and was left in his tomb. But there is one that died but was not left to Sheol. There was one that died and never saw corruption. And that was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when you fail to respond to the Lord or fail to delight in him or his people or his plan or compromise his truth and word indeed, we can rest secure in the fact and the knowledge that Christ never did any of those things. That he always delighted himself in the things of God. He always delighted himself in the people of God and the plan of God. He always delighted in the truth of God's word. The Bible teaches us that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. I'm the path to life. The Bible says, Jesus speaking to his people, you and I, says, you trust in me, my joy will be in you and it will be complete. The Bible teaches that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. These are all the promises we read about in verse 11 of Psalm 16. And how does Jesus make all that possible? Well, if you know anything about the story of Christ, although Jesus himself is the path to life, Jesus tasted death on a cross. Although Jesus is the fullness of joy that he gives to all of humanity, he had to become the man of sorrows. And Jesus can promise that God's presence will be never taken from you because God's presence was taken from him on the cross. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he, so that God would never have to forsake you. Jesus was forsaken so you would never have to be. Jesus became the man of sorrows, so our joy in him could be complete. Jesus, the path of life, tasted death, so he could make that path clear, because death couldn't hold him, as the psalmist said. He could not be confined to Sheol, and he could never see corruption. He did it for us, every one of us. That's what Christmas is about, right? It's clear why Psalm 1611 is such an amazing verse. Life, joy, pleasure, it's all right here. It's the things that we all want. And this psalm shows us the reality of what it takes to get those things, but then immediately reminds us that we will fail. I don't know about you, but if we, when we read verses two through eight, 
fail, fail, fail. No matter what stalwart Christian you might be, if you're reading God's word honestly, you realize it wasn't written to tell you, here's the standard, live up to it. It was written to remind us, here's the standard, you can't. And so I'm sending my son who can. And so all those who trust and rest in his fulfillment of this reality spoken of in the Old Testament can have the promises and benefits fulfilled in their lives. Which is why the last verse, or the fourth verse of that carol is so important. It says this, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. This is truly why we can say it is a Merry Christmas today because Emmanuel, God with us, came to guarantee our life, our joy, our pleasures forevermore. Merry Christmas. Yeah, let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.